Welcome to A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, a podcast about geek culture by lawyers, with your hosts, Ben Siders and Kirk Damon. This episode is sponsored by the Moss Eisley Ramen Hut, noodles for your noodle. All right, and welcome everybody to episode, well, I should say the third episode of A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, which obviously is episode six. And that makes us Return to the Jedi, right? Yes, this is Return to the Jedi, which means the first half of this podcast will be great, and the second half will sort of drag on. <laughs> and be a rehashing <laughs> of the first one? I don't yeah, exactly, so. exactly. Uh, I'm your host, Ben Siders, uh, IP attorney here in St. Louis. With me here, as always, is uh, your co-host, Kirk Damon. That's Kirk, as in the caption of the Enterprise? Of course. Uh, our subject today is going to be a little different, but before we get into that, uh, Kirk, Game of Thrones came out yesterday. Yep, it did. Did you watch it? Nope. Oh, all right. <laughs> well, Kirk, Kirk's a fan of the books uh, more so than the than the TV series. I have not read the books. Especially, especially since they're starting to diverge the whole plot line. I'm just not yeah, sure I can so actually watch. This is a podcast. You, you're probably listening to this after um, after uh, you know we're recording this, obviously. So today is the 17th, and uh, the season 7 premiere of Game of Thrones just came out. Um I'll, I'll, spoiler alert, not much really happens. <laughs> Isn't that what's supposed to happen in the first episode, though? You always have the you know, huge yeah. lead-up that something's going to happen. There's a lot of, like, like well, happens. my wife watched it with me. She hasn't been watching it, and she was like, get me caught up on this. I'm like, you want me to get you caught up on six seasons of Game of Thrones in, like, five minutes? <laughs> like, uh, 5,000 pages of books? Yeah, it's like, summarize the Bible. Uh, it, it can't be done. Um, yeah, so the, uh, this weekend I went to, uh, there's a new uh, brewery over in St. Charles. Uh, for those of you who aren't in St. Louis, St. Charles is a suburb, uh, you know, just outside of town. Uh, it's called Two Plumbers. Have you heard of this one? Oh yeah, I've heard of yeah. it. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's uh, it's it's uh, like a uh, like a nineteen eighties like eight bit themed uh, brew pub. Uh, which I think will be the genesis of probably at least one episode of this podcast, just based on the <laughs> amount of uh, trademark usage that's going on in rather creative fashion over there. But um, I'm sure, yeah. And it's, if you haven't figured out yet, Ben and I are both pretty serious beer geeks, so don't yes. be surprised if beer does show up periodically in conjunction with these episodes. If you can geek out about something, we have, and we will. <laughs> uh, okay, so today's subject is religion, and yes, we're going to geek out about that too. Uh, this is a touchy subject, of course, and just as a bit of a prelude, I think I speak for Kirk here, I don't really have a dog in this hunt, so we're going to be approaching this from sort of an academic standpoint. I'm not particularly religious myself, I'm not against religion, I just don't really care either way. Um, Christmas trees don't bother me, uh, <laughs> Ramadan doesn't bother none of this stuff bothers me, I don't care. Uh, so, so we're not here to pass judgment on religion or religious beliefs or people who hate religion. Uh, we, don't, we don't care. We're here to talk about uh, a very specific topic, uh, fake religion. Uh, can you get legal protection for uh, practicing religions that are made up? And in this case, uh, we're going to talk about a couple. The main one being Jedi. Can you get legal protection for practicing the tenets of the Jedi faith, I guess you'd say? Yeah, probably faith. Yeah. Uh, and we're going to get into the flying spaghetti monster, uh, Unitarianism, and some other things as well. But I think at the outset, uh, astute listeners are probably wondering how you distinguish a fake religion from a, a real one. And um, you know, I think as we get into this, you'll see that that's sort of the crux of the whole question. Obviously, there's some religions that I think nobody would reasonably challenge are quote-unquote real. You know, like the big five, Christianity, Judaism, uh, Hinduism, Islam, and um, what am I missing? Buddhism, maybe? Buddhism, maybe. Yeah. Taoism. Um, so there's some that you know nobody would challenge them, and there's there's a number like flying a spaghetti monster, 
clearly manufactured out of out of whole cloth. Yeah, and that's and I think part of the thing when you're talking about is you know what does it mean to be fake and sort of the questions along those lines as well. Yeah, you're talking about. The, I mean, there's an end all determination here. The fact that in the end it's wrong. I think a lot of times we look at it and we say, well, Greek mythology was wrong um, because yeah. it turns out in the end it was. Yeah. Well, it um, turns out in the end nobody's practicing it. Therefore, yeah. it's not a real religion it's anymore. Not a real religion and that's another question. Like, you get into Hellenism or, um, or or Wiccanism. I think is another interesting one, which you know has an identifiable genesis in the UK that's not that old, but is based on sort of a, a throwback to centuries-old um, lore, yeah. sort of, yeah, about witchcraft. Also, yeah, one could argue almost one of the oldest religions yeah. in the world. Yeah, or what about people who practice Druidism? So there's a lot of questions here about what is or is not fake. Um, and, and you know, preview, we're going to get into things lost in the mists of time are more likely to be given credence than those that aren't. So how do we come up with this topic? To, to start with, as with our last episode, uh, I'm going to ask you to cast your mind back to 2001. Whatever reason, 2001, like a lot of weird <laughs> stuff happened. Well, so, it's has something to do with the Y2K bug. It could be, yeah. Uh, so the, the UK was doing their census at the time, and uh, bear in mind this is like two years after uh, episode one came out for Star Wars, and everybody was eagerly awaiting episode two, I think both out of anxiety and... <laughs> like, hope. Like, let's just hope that was just the, the one that's going to go down You're, in history as being the bad You do, of course, realize one. that our next episode, episode four, is going to presumably be the oh, first of the prequels. Shoot, yeah, yeah. So don't listen to the next one. Uh, <laughs> no. Um, so uh, about three hundred and fifty thousand people in the UK claimed Jedi as their religion on their census form, which uh, I looked this up, made it the fourth largest religion in the UK after Christianity, Islam, and Hinduism. Uh, so more Jedis than Jews in the UK, according to, <laughs> according to the census. Uh, this then spread to other countries, uh, but actually not the US, because I think our census forms don't actually ask for your religion anymore. Yeah. In any case, it would be been... a voluntary question, too. Yeah, I mean. it could be. So this got it thinking, what, what would it take to have a Jedi religion receive legal protection in the United States? States. Yeah, and that's, I mean, it's an interesting question because I think the thing you bump into is there's no question that Jedi was created as part of a movie. Yeah, obviously, it, yeah. yeah. You know, it's it, it's not something that was created to ever be a religion per, you know, on purpose, um, but it was created as a religion inside a fictional universe. Um, yeah, and, and so no the question, it is a spirituality, you know, and, and Kirk and I were just talking uh, casually once. If if you sincerely follow and adhere to the tenets of that religion to the extent you can discern them from the films, which is debatable, um, wh- why would that not be every bit as much of a protectable religious belief as any other? So um, this is going to be kind of an unusual topic for us because it's it's primarily about constitutional law and fundamental rights, whereas most of what we do is IP rights. And we're going to be focusing here on the Establishment Clause, which I'll get into in a second. But I think it's fair to say, Kirk, in our line of work, I don't think I've once had to ever deal with the establishment clause. <laughs> yeah, I think as an IP lawyer, you know, we only ever deal with one clause of the United States Constitution, which is the clause of the glance IP rights. Yeah, exactly. Um, but, you know, definitely there's, you know, when people think of law, the Constitution's the basic law of the United States. It's what you have to go back to in every respect. And in some respects, all law, even intellectual property law, is based upon the Constitution. So therefore, it makes sense that, you know, it's whenever you're involved in anything, you know, legal related, you're eventually going to get there. Yeah, if, if you trace anything back far enough, that's where you get. And, and this is sort of the inverse of what we do. IP rights are rights that are affirmatively given to Congress, a power given to Congress to grant IP rights, but you know your, your individual rights are negative rights, things Congress cannot do. So yep. this is sort of the opposite of our, our usual thing. So we're going to have a, probably a little more law 
talk here today than we usually will, and we'll try to keep it uh, light and interesting. There are some bizarre and I think interesting cases we're going to talk about, uh, but we had to lay a little bit of, of groundwork on how the Constitution works just to have this conversation, which we'll do quickly in a couple minutes. And really, this should be something everybody knows if you went to high school, <laughs> but I, I can tell you virtually nobody does, up to and including most of our political class. So. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to make Ben do it too, just because he's the big Constitution guy, I, I am he a has Constitution the Constitution geek. up on his wall and everything else. So. Yeah, I told you, we'll geek out about anything. Thing. So uh, the Constitution, uh, the U.S. Constitution embodies a couple of uh, uh, principles, but the most relevant ones today are, are two. One is the powers of our government are few, and they are listed in the Constitution, and that's all they can do. And the other principle is that the rights of the people are many, and they're not listed. And so there's no one who can point to a list and say, you don't have the right to do X because it's not on the list. That well, concept there, doesn't exist. There are a few you know, specific rights that are laid out as, as remaining yeah. with the individual, which we think of as the bill of rights primarily. Yeah, and the, the Ninth and Tenth Amendments make that very clear. That like you can't read this and say, since the right's not listed here, we don't have it. Of course we do. So uh, and and another theory underlying our constitution is that uh, people's fundamental and basic rights uh, are are intrinsically part of their humanity. Uh, the people are the sovereign and they have these rights just by virtue of being human. Governments don't grant these rights. Governments can't take them away. All they can do is ignore and violate them. So um, and this was all, you know, you had to put this in the context of the of the Revolutionary War and and uh, you know, a bunch of Enlightenment liberals trying to find justification for rebelling against the king. <laughs> Having just recently watched Hamilton, uh, <laughs> it's one of those things where you can really see where some of this comes from. Yeah, so, so the government uh, can only exercise the powers that it has, but it's not supposed to exercise those in violation of our fundamental rights. And to be really clear on this, as Kirk just alluded to, Congress listed some of the really important rights in the Bill of Rights. And uh, the First Amendment is the one I think people are probably most familiar with. Uh, those are your expressive rights, I call them. You got freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom to assemble, freedom to petition the government uh, for redress of grievances. Uh, that's basically the right to complain. Uh, and then the last one is the freedom of religion, which has two pieces. One is the government will not establish a religion, and the other one is the government will not inhibit the free exercise of a religion. We're not going to talk about the establishment clause, I don't think, today. We're going to focus more on the free exercise portion because that's the basis, I think, for legal protection of your right to practice a faith. Yeah, And definitely, I think with the establishment clause, we're not talking about the idea of the government saying there is a religion here. It's the idea of them saying what is, what, what arguably do we say is religion protected by this because you're practicing what you're doing underneath Yeah, like there's it. the peyote case, right? Like some some yeah. Navajo uh, religious beliefs involve the use of peyote and there was a law prohibiting that and that went up to the Supreme Court and I think the court said, sorry, no, we have a valid public purpose reason for prohibiting this. It's, I don't remember entirely, to be quite truthful, I remember studying it in law school, but yeah. the, um, the thing I remember from it is it, it went a little bit both ways. There yeah. was some recognition of the fact that it was a religious practice, there's certain ways to do it as a religious practice practice, but at the same time, there can still be a general prohibition. Yeah, and the, the way that these issues usually come up in the law is that a state, usually a state, sometimes a federal government, has has passed a law that disproportionately affects or unfairly affects people who practice specific religious beliefs. And basically, you know, you can come up with anything you can make a part of your religion. I had a friend when I was a kid who insisted that uh, using microwaves was against his religion because he hated microwaved food. <laughs> okay. you know? So, I mean, that one's a silly example, obviously, but if you're, you know, if you're a prisoner in a federal prison and they're making you eat microwave food and you're going to say that's part of your religious beliefs, then they're infringing your freedom to practice your religion yeah. by not giving you uh, a meal you can eat. So the same thing works with, like, kosher meals. I'm pretty yeah. sure prisons give kosher meals to, to Jewish prisoners. Yeah, and halal meals, for yeah, example. Yeah, halal, yeah, same thing. So th there is an effort made to, uh, to, to respect these things. 
Now, in historical context, obviously when the Constitution was written, the only widely practiced religions in, in the U.S. were essentially flavors of Christianity. But nowhere in the right, Constitution – Judaism yeah, too. Yeah. I mean. uh, but, but nowhere does the Constitution say, oh, by the way, we just mean Christians. Obviously, it doesn't say that. And so this rule applies to everybody. Um, and the, the, the fundamental question is what does it mean to practice a religious belief? Yep. What is truly a religious belief and what is not? And I think the keyword key here, and I think the, the one thing we really want to get into is the, the word – practice. We're not just talking about the fact that you have a religious belief that you can say, hey, I believe this or anything along those lines. We're saying that you're affirmatively doing something which you claim is this, as a necessary part of the practice of the religious belief. And oftentimes these things fall into other areas of the First Amendment. I mean, obviously the idea of we want to get together and we want to talk about the religion also falls underneath freedom to assemble. So one of those things I think that's, that's very intriguing in conjunction with this is we are really talking very, very specifically about people taking an affirmative action related to the practice of the religious belief. And in many respects, that action also is going to be involving somebody else who doesn't necessarily hold the same religious belief. Because again, if it's kind of one of these things where if both people believe whatever they believe, they have a religious belief and they have they both have it and they both carry it out together, there's really not going to be any dispute Yeah, no here. one's going to care. What you really bump into is you're going to bump into somebody who's saying, what I'm doing is practicing, I'm having this affirmative action, which is my religious belief. And it's encountering somebody who doesn't necessarily have that affirmative belief. And that's where this this concern is lying. Or it raises public policy issues. Yeah. So one of the ways this came up was, this is also in the UK. What are you doing in the UK, guys? Uh, but a, a bunch of people in Jedi robes were had their hoods up in like a shop, and the shopkeeper asked them to leave, and they refused, saying it was part of our religious belief. Uh, now, that's obviously a little bit silly, and I think most people look at that and say, eh, come on, you know, just, just take your hoods down and, and stop playing dress up. Yeah. But... You know, that, that begs, uh, raises a question, though. What's the difference between that and asking a Muslim woman to remove a hijab? Yeah, and that's – you're suddenly getting into this. It's that – again, what I want to get into is this, this interaction with other people. What mm -hmm. the concern here is, is you're concealing identity. You know, you have something where this presents a pr potential public, you know, risk of people that are out there. Somebody could be hiding something, um, depending on what the store is, depending on exactly where that is. I and mean, we've all seen the signs of, you know, you have to remove hoodies, you have to remove baseball caps when you enter a bank. Um, you know, there's a there's a reason for that that has nothing to do with religion. It has entirely to do with the practicality of running a society. But it affects people's religious practices, and that's how these things come up. So yep. we, we found a couple of interesting cases, one of which we were just talking about before we sat down to record this, but both Kirk and I were shocked by the outcome. So this is an 1890 Supreme Court case uh, where a Mormon was criminally prosecuted for conspiracy to commit voter fraud. He basically lived in a U.S. territory which had passed a law making it illegal for Mormons to vote or hold office unless you took an oath swearing that you did not practice Mormonism. Now, we got to remember 1890, we're yeah. talking 60 years after Mormonism was founded by, what's his name, Joseph Smith? Uh, it might have been, yeah. yeah. I think a lot of what we're also talking about, and, and quite truthful in conjunction with this, is probably polygamy concerns. Probably, yeah. Um, you know, because there was, uh, one of the things to keep in mind is that that was a, a, a concern of the United States for, I think, reasons that had nothing to necessarily do with religion. I mean, there's a question they used to ask at Ellis Island as to whether or not you were a polygamist, and that was a reason they could exclude you. Well, this this guy uh, con conspired to take the oath in order to be allowed to vote. He was somehow caught and prosecuted, and he argued that conditioning the right to vote on his religion burdened his free exercise. And Kirk and I both looked at this and said, well, obviously, the court's going to say, no, you can't make him do that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But that's not how it came out. Uh, 1890, like I said, uh, the court said no, and they distinguished religious beliefs from religious practices. And they said, uh, you can't change people's beliefs. You can't tell them what to believe. Well, obviously, you can't. You can't control people's minds yet. Uh, 
but practices can be infringed, uh, including in this case criminal punishment. Uh, especially, and, and the reasoning was basically that's what the people want. Yep. The people are the sovereign, as I said before, and so prevailing uh, moral norms are, are going to win out. And uh, as an aside, I think it's fair to say this opinion tragically misunderstands how democracy majoritarianism <laughs> is supposed to work. Uh, we have an, another theory called pluralism, which is where yep. we try to get along and live together. But um, anyway, the, the court defined religion based on internal belief rather than external manifestations, and they, they specifically said – requires an element of divinity. And I've actually got a quote here. Here's what they said. The term religion has reference to one's views of his relations to his creator and to the obligations they impose of reverence for his being and character and of obedience to his will, end quote. I cannot imagine a modern court saying anything like no, this. No, neither can I. And I think it's as well, it's just, you know, I mean, I'm looking at the same quote you are in conjunction with this. It's got C, uh, you know, capital C on creator. Yeah, you know, this is an implied, you know, divine being. That know. may be a, th- a shout out to the Declaration of Independence. It may be, you know, but I think there's there's some interesting things. I think the the thing that's so interesting about this is a lot of people, and and I've gotten into this debate before, is what's the difference between religion and spirituality. And, you know, what we kind of see here is a court that seems to be, you know, getting at that distinction of saying it's religion. Um and exactly what is that you know the saying religion effectively means what is your spiritual belief and what we're really regulating is the practice again of um, religion we're saying hey you agree in conjunction with this thing that you aren't pr- practicing this religion yeah you can believe in it all you like that's what it grants you the freedom of under freedom of religion but you can't practice it you can't but it really defangs the first amendment right like if I have no real protection for practicing my faith if I can be required and criminally punished for not taking an oath saying I'm not a Mormon I'm not practicing it then, yeah. I mean that's I don't know I, I find that pretty hard to swallow um, and this the opinion goes on it likens Mormonism to religions that practice human sacrifice and other unsavory parallels it's a pretty dated case. This is the yeah. of, co- of course, if you think about it, most mainstream religions encourage that too, which is kind of a you know concern here. And I think a lot of people said those parts of you know the various religious texts are no longer you know necessarily relevant to modern world. But at the same time, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's an interesting you know dichotomy. Well, and it's it's a very narrow definition of what a religion is. You have to have a deity of some kind. You have to have a, a set of beliefs that are related to obligations of reverence and obedience to to some sort of divine will. Obviously, you know, traditional religions embody those to a great extent, but there's a, a you know there are faiths that don't. Uh, there are faiths that don't have one creator yeah. at all. There's there's pantheistic uh, uh, belief sets. That's what I was focusing on the idea of this you know creator with a capital C of the, the you know in certain respects they kind of knock out the idea of any kind of pantheotic you know yeah, relationship. It, it seems like a pretty clear reference to religions are are Christian and Christian like religions. Maybe Judaism, maybe Islam as well. Yeah, and and it's, it's well, like knowledge. I think other ones too. I mean, I think Buddhism would say it arguably has a single you know, re, you know, relevant um, um, character, you know, in conjunction with it, even if they're, you know, it's yeah. not necessarily the fact that that's a creator. Well, turning to the Jedi, under this ruling, would you be able to get uh, legal protection for practicing the Jedi faith? Is, well, is the Force one creator or not? No, it's midichlorians, and there are lots of little <laughs> microorganisms, right? No, no, wait, we're oh, not going to go to episode one. Yeah, it depends one. on we what's canon and what's exists. not. Now we get into <laughs> debating the scripture, right? Um, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, no, it, it, it seems you probably, I mean, probably not, right? I mean, this this court would look at this and say, you, you guys are buffoons, yeah. and there's no way. Um, I think that's the thing with this is, it's you know, if you look at this under the term of Jedi and the idea of what they said under here, there's no way Jedi would fall underneath this, this requirement. There's no real creator, at least that we've seen yet in conjunction yeah. with the Jedi religion. And the idea that they impose reverence and being for character and obedience to his will. You're not doing the work of a creator. You just not simply really. are. 
Yeah. I mean, Although, know. I mean, in Rogue One, what, what was it that uh, Chirrut Inway kept saying? All will be as the Force wills it. <laughs> yeah. you know? So maybe there is some new evidence in the yeah. scripture. But that's the other thing. You can just make up new scripture as we go and yeah. <laughs> say whatever you want. I, I wonder if the outcome of this case wasn't influenced by just the fact that Mormonism was a relatively young um, faith at the time and there's some skepticism by the court that it's a real thing at yeah. that point. I, th- and, I think there also was some, some definite that they were concerns with some of the things that it both yeah. allowed and it prescribed. Well, and then the other question is, is I mean, should length of time be part of this calculus at all? Does it matter how long a belief, you know, or a set of beliefs has been held as far as whether it's a real religious belief or not? Yeah, and that's that's a weird sort of kind of – and one of the things I think is, is interesting in conjunction with that is you talked about the idea of, you know, things being lost to the, you know, sort of, you know, sands of time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the – as we get further and further away, it starts to feel like, okay, more, it's been longer, people are more used to it. Okay, fine, yeah, you, if it's existed for 100 years, then people truly are believing it at this point in time. Well, the court later refined its attitude towards this, and I'm going to fast forward to the 1940s, it's 50 years later, and uh, the court was addressing a conscientious objector statute for the military, which, uh, I'm not going to quote it, read the quote, but it basically said that uh, if you have a belief in relation to a capital S supreme, capital B, being, uh, involving duties superior to those arising from your human relations, uh, then uh, you can be exempt from military service. And the question was whether this conscientious objectors whose objections were not based on a deity would still be exempt from the draft under the law. And the court said yes with some conditions. First, the belief has to be, quote, sincere and, and meaningful, end quote, and it has to occupy a place in the life of its possessor parallel to that filled by the orthodox belief in God, capital G. Um, I said where these beliefs have such parallel positions, uh, we cannot say that one in relation to a supreme being and one not is, is, any, is any different. Uh, they're both sincerely held. Uh, so this is this is a broader definition, but it, it seems like it's still basically defining religion as if it's not Christianity, it's something kind of like it. It does have that feel. At the same time, the thing that I think is very interesting about this and, and the way that they say it is – they, they get into, again, that idea of it's a personal belief. Yeah. That you're really focusing very much on does this person actively believe it. And that's what I think is – and, and you know, a little bit of where I think we're going here in conjunction with it is we're, the court's kind of taking a step back and saying we're not going to necessarily look at objectively what are you doing, which I think was mm-hmm. a little bit of the concern in conjunction with this, this 1890s court. Now, what we're really going to look at is – is the reason you're doing this because you have some, and I'm going to use the term loosely, moral obligation mm-hmm. to do so, that you looking at it and you individually say, hey, I have to do this because it's above something, which is my societal obligation. Yeah, and that's kind of in the statute too. And I, I think under this rubric, being a Jedi, if you could establish that, yeah. that you sincerely held these beliefs and that it required you to, to be a pacifist, which would never fly if you've seen the movies. <laughs> but, uh, but if, you know, assuming you could make that showing, I think there's a decent decent chance that you could plausibly argue I practice this religion this is what I believe it doesn't matter that it's based on a, a 1970s you know uh, film um, it's, it's what I believe yeah. and I can't be compelled to violate my beliefs and I think that's the thing that they, really what we're seeing here in the court and I think this may be where the, the court's kind of going with this is in some sense they're defining religion as simply something you believe yeah it's which is an interesting thought the idea you have that, to believe you know, it really hard though yeah you have to believe <laughs> it really hard and you, it's I think they also kind of expect that you have you had some kind of external manifestation of it um, and that's where I think it gets very interesting when you talk about the Jedi. You have these people who are the idea that we won't put down our hoods when we're in a store even though we're supposed to. Now you actually have an external manifestation of the mm-hmm. idea that saying, you know, I am believing this, particularly if it's something where they wear their robes on a regular basis, they do whatever it is. You kind of then look at it and say, does it really matter if it's even Jedi? 
what we really have Probably is we have somebody not. who just simply says, this is my belief and this is my requirement. It doesn't matter if they believe that it's Jedi. It doesn't matter if it's something that they have just simply created for themselves. The question is, do they believe that this is necessary for some reason and that that reason is above the requirements of society? Yeah, I think I think the issue you'd get into here is is more on the proof side. Like, how would you establish that this yes. is something you genuinely believe, and you're not just making excuses to be a draft dodger? You know, and when you get into a, a, a religion that's either clearly manufactured, like Star Wars, or or uh, of more recent vintage, like say the Unification Church or, or Scientology, even, I think it's um, you get into questions of proof when there's if there's not a centralized religious body that can set forth the ideals of the religion, or there's not like a clear uh, sacred text or scripture you can refer to, how, how do you establish that what you're refusing to do is correctly following yeah. the faith? And I think that's one of the things where you talk about the idea of the sands of time. And I think that's an important sort of a- aspect here as I think one of the things the courts sort of recognize and I think when you look at these types of things as well, the idea that if this has been going on for 100 years and it hasn't changed, it implies that, you know, yeah, this is the tenant of a religion and therefore as a person following it, if you're following that tenant, regardless of why it was originally set up, that doesn't matter. What matters is the fact that that tenet's been around for so long and enough people have followed it, it implies there are people who do sincerely believe it. Um, whereas when you're the first one, you're the initial person who says, I am a Jedi, something along those lines, you then sort of bump into the question yeah. of, well, is this something that you personally have come up with to meet your own personal selfish goals? Or is this something which really is sort of a, a belief above and beyond the requirements of society? I think that makes sense. Like, I mean, with any movement, there's always the first crazy person that does it, right? And, yeah. and then, you know, 100 years later when everybody's still doing it, it doesn't seem so crazy anymore. Yeah. Well, I, I like this formulation better, but of course the court later backed off of this. Uh, this is what they call the functional equivalency test. And it's actually not the standard. The court clarified in the 1970s that this holding was limited to this particular case and the conscientious objector statute uh, and that it will not be used to decide uh, First Amendment uh, religious protection. In fact, in another case in the 70s, involved uh, uh, Amish settlements in Wisconsin who wanted to re- withdraw their children from compulsory uh, public or private education and just give them vocational training. And the court was clear in that case that philosophical and personal beliefs are not protected by the First Amendment religious clauses. They may be mm-hmm. protected otherwise, but not by that clause. Uh, the court said that the very concept of ordered liberty precludes allowing every person to make his own standards on matters of conduct in which society as a whole has important interests. This kind of seems like a call back to that 1890s case where they're yeah. saying, look, to sort of a, a moral standard, de facto moral standard established by society, and if you're too far outside of it, then tough luck. Now I'm going to throw sort of a crazy concept out here. I mean, in some sense, what we seem to be saying is, hey, we've got this idea of a moral follow-up, you know, what are we doing for, for morality and stuff like that. It almost seems like the court is playing off two different moralities, one of which is we have a morality which is created by a religion, which, you know, the person mm-hmm. is stating that they follow, and we have a morality which is created by the Constitution and by sort of the, the situation of government. Sort of a secular morality, in. which is probably still informed by religious beliefs, yep. but it's sort of a, a communal morality. Yep. And now you kind of bump into the idea of which of these is higher, and it seems like that's kind of a little bit the court is saying here is at times maybe it's the personal belief at times it may be the societal belief you know in some sense the the idea of law and order is itself a religion well and it makes a little bit of sense if you conceptualize that the people are the sovereign in a republican democracy which mm-hmm. is what we have then then the people's will is is what governs what the law is going to be so if if something is outside of the standards of the community at large if they're the sovereign they get to decide and the government as agents of the people is supposed to enforce their will. Yeah. 
Um, and maybe that's a little bit of what it is, is this is just where is, as we think about the sovereigns of the United States, there's a lot of changing opinions in conjunction oh, yeah. with this. And as we have changing opinions, does that mean that the court should actually be changing its enforcement along the lines of those opinions? Now, that may get scary at some point in time, especially for, you know, depending on what exactly the court is yeah. and what the politics <laughs> are, are currently um, at any time in the United States. Well, in this particular case, the court actually did recognize the uh, the Amish practice of and and refused to compel the uh, uh, the Amish children to go to school. Uh, the court said it was a protected exercise of religion, uh, in part because the Amish people have, as an organized faith community, engaged in you know vocational training like this for a long period of time. And while the court didn't set out any particular test for how you make that determination, uh, once again, the concept of they've been doing this for a long time shows up. Yeah. And it's, it, it, we seem to be coming back to the same things over and over again. Yeah. So back to the Jedi, you know, as an initial matter, sh- should the, the length of time is important, obviously, but does this mean that whether something is a religion is a function purely of duration? And that's, that doesn't sound like a good test. No, I it, mean, doesn't. it doesn't. It doesn't. Um, and because and you know, newly formed beliefs can be just as sincerely held as any others. And I, I wonder if what we're seeing here is that the court is using the duration of the practice as a proxy for sincerity. Yeah, I, I think that's definitely what we are seeing. Because I think the concern is is it's how much do you have that belief in order to deal with something you don't want to do. So again, we get back to like the conscientious objector type standard. I've developed a belief which says I have to be a conscientious objector because I don't want to go. Yeah. You know, I don't want to be drafted that you know okay we shouldn't acknowledge that at the same time if this is something which that has been a standard for 500 years it's not like you could have created it just to get around that now you obviously could have adapted the religion to get to it but you know the i think that's where they're really getting at they're using it as this proxy for belief they're basically saying that hey if you're established you're working with something which is long established which has been out there for a long period of time it's hard to say that was created to deal with a secular problem yeah, I think that's a good point. Obviously, if, if there's a, a, a tenant of a faith that's centuries old, you're right. You, you can hardly say, well, you're just trying to get out of going to war, yeah. right? Like, no, no, this has been going on for a long time, and these people have practiced it. I, th- I think that's really what they're what they're using the length of time for, is just to filter out fad religions and filter out people who are using religion as a pretext to, yeah. to get out of something. I think that's the real concern here, is that they're very worried about people using religion as a pretext. Yeah. And we don't want to say that a religion isn't a religion because we think it could be a pretext. We really want to get at people who are trying to say, no, it is a pretext. It's not really a religion. It's just something I've created. Well, that brings us to our last case. Uh, A prisoner in, I think, Nebraska... Uh, was demanding a religious accommodation for his belief in the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster. So if you don't know what that is, uh, the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster is a a satirical church that I think was originally intended as political commentary. Uh, There was a big intelligent design debate. Intelligent design was and is in some places being taught as an alternative to the theory of evolution and science curricula. And um, it's, you know, basically intelligent. the, The Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster points out that intelligent design is, you know, a non-falsifiable hypothesis, yep. basically. Like, basically, it's a theory that you can't eliminate the possibility of a divine creator, which is correct. You can't. Um, but it's their, their point is that that's a non-scientific line of inquiry. If it's not falsifiable under yep. the scientific method, it's not science. So, uh, and, and the point of the flying spaghetti monster church was to say, we could ease, as easily say that there's an invisible flying spaghetti monster that makes the universe work. It's, you know, yep. it's, it's sillier, obviously, but it's equally non-falsifiable. So yep. it was meant as basically political commentary on the intersection of religion and, um, and, and science. I think it wasn't even so much political commentary as with scientific commentary. Yeah, you know, yeah. the, the real idea behind this is basically saying that when you have something where the proof is that it cannot be disproved, 
Yeah, and now it's pastafarianism is what yeah. they call it. Now. So, <laughs> um, so this, uh, and I mean, they've actually incorporated. I think they've got like a, an official church and everything now. Yep. It's really taken on a life of its own. But anyway, this prisoner. This is not a Supreme Court case. This was just a Nebraska District Court. The prisoner argued that the, uh, the you know the prison conditions violated his right to practice his faith, but uh, the court didn't buy it. They noted that the church was intentionally designed to mimic the structure of a of a what they call legitimate religious organization, but its main concern is with you know preventing other religious beliefs from being taught as science. And the court said this is a strictly secular argument and that the church is not truly a religious entity. Um, and, and interestingly, they said it's, you know, with respect to how you define a religion, it's not an easy line to draw. But the court, here's what they said, quote, there must be a line beyond which a practice is not religious simply because a plaintiff labels it as such. The court concludes that the flying spaghetti monster is on the far side of that line, yeah. which I, you know, I think it's hard to argue that's not the case. But now we're back to religious text. You know what? What would be a, a religious text for a Jedi that you could use to reference what is a what is a tenet of the faith? I yeah. mean, is a New Hope scripture? <laughs> I mean, one could argue that it is, but I think the thing you bump into then is it's well, do we really need a religious text? What about oral tradition? Yeah, you know, we have a lot of religious texts, or arguably texts that were created from a prior oral tradition. Well, the entire book, I mean, the entire down. book of Genesis was oral tradition for what centuries? Correct. Probably? I mean, I think most of the Bible, in many respects, is you know, was until you get into the fact that you're having somebody who's a first person account. Um, you know, where it's, uh, you know, those types of chapters is what you get into. What you really bump into is the vast majority of it is secondhand accounts, if not third, fourth, or 50th. Well, if we're going to use time as a proxy for sincerity, this raises other problems. So if, if time is what matters, what's the difference between a superstition and a religious belief, right? Because, yep. I mean, for how long has people been believing, oh, black cat crossed your path, broke a mirror. <laughs> Number 13. If you spill the salt, you know, yeah. uh, knock on wood, don't walk under ladders. There are people who very sincerely uh, hold superstitions and, uh, if, you know, and, and they go way back. So, you know, What's the difference? How, how do you categorize one from the other? And should superstitions also receive protection? Yeah, I mean, if you're if you're a prisoner being made to work uh, in in conditions that that would violate your super, or here's an even better one: sports superstitions. Right? <laughs> you're a huge fan of a sports team, and if you don't wear your Michael Jordan jersey, you haven't washed since 1993. The Bulls aren't going to win. Like you may sincerely believe that. I know people who do. Yep. Um, should that be protected? Yeah. How's the, how's the old ad line go? It isn't weird if it works. <laughs> that's um, exactly right. You know, and that's that. That kind of thing. It's that's I think the thing you're getting into with this, and I think the flying spaghetti monster is a great example of what gets said is because in many respects the flying spaghetti monster is a religion which arose out of a comment about religion being a problem. Yeah. Um, and there's lots of things that have come into it. I mean, remember one of the other ones that came out of the Flying Spaghetti Monster is one of the tenets is that you wear a colander on your head? Yes. Um, and there was a lot of argument as to whether or not you could do that in conjunction with your driver's license photo because you're allowed to wear religious headwear, but you're generally not allowed to wear any other form of headwear in conjunction with a, a uh, driver's license photo. And the answer was that there apparently are people who have colanders on their heads in their um, – in their uh, driver's license That's photos. awesome. The other thing with it is, is, and I believe in conjunction with it, you can actually specify that uh, Pastanarianism is your religion for the purpose of the United States military, where, of course, they place your religion oh, on wow. your dog tags yeah. and stuff um, because, you know, for last rites and things along those lines. I'd be curious um, to see what the burial ritual is. For now, if, if I remember correctly, it actually specifies that it's, it's flying spaghetti monster atheist is actually the way it specifies oh, okay. it in conjunction with it, which is kind of an interesting, you know, statement in and of itself on what the, the argument for flying spaghetti monster is. 
Fascinating. Well, uh, so we're running a little bit long, so we're going to wrap that one up. This is it's it's a topic we could talk about for literally hours. Um, <laughs> but uh, one final thought on that: uh, the the court the courts the law seems to take pains to say we don't know what religion is and we're not going to define it. We know it when we see it. Yep. And I, just as a matter of irony, the other major topic they said that about is pornography. Yeah, it, it, <laughs> it is. It's kind of an intriguing you know, sort of thing with it. That's I think the old the, Potter Stewart test. The thing I think it's a takeaway for everybody in conjunction with this. And I think it's part of the reason we wanted to talk about this subject, even though this is a touchy subject, is the fact that what you see here is a court really struggling with trying to figure out how do we define what an individual believes? Because we're talking in this in many respects about what is going on inside their head and a why behind it. And that's the all-important piece here. And this happens throughout law. So much of what we do boils down to who do you believe? Is somebody telling the truth or not? That's why we have jury trials. Yep. If, if we just believe everybody's telling the truth and nobody disagrees and you don't need a jury. Yep. So this uh, this happens everywhere. Well, we're gonna, we do have two reader questions today we're going to address before we wrap it up. Uh, the first is from uh, Mike M. In uh, He gave a last name, but I will omit it to preserve his anonymity. Uh, <laughs> Mike, I, I know you're grateful for that because I know who Mike is. Uh, Mike M. in Long Beach. And uh, by the way, uh, thank you, Long Beach. Thank you, L.A., for tuning in. We appreciate your patronage. I was actually just out there. Uh, have you been to L.A.? Yeah, I've been to L.A. I yeah. was out there earlier this year. I would, actually. Yeah, I, was, uh, I was out there a year and a half ago for the Rose Bowl. It, uh, it actually reminded me of St. Louis a little bit. Like, <laughs> Re- replace muddy river with pretty ocean, and then, and then <laughs> multiply by ten. You've got St. Louis. It's all spread out, very industrial. Okay, so Mike says, uh, "This is in reference to our last podcast. Why would you want to get a patent on time travel so long before it's invented? Patents only last seventeen years, so it would expire before anybody could use it." Um, so this is a reference to our, our last podcast on time travel, where we asked if a time traveler came back from the future and disclosed the plans to his time machine, could you get a patent on it? And Mike's point is. Even if you could, why would you bother? Because the patent will expire before you ever use the time yep. machine, so why would you want it? What do you think, Kurt? I think, I think there's two reasons for it, one of which is probably recognition of saying, you know, hey, I was involved in the patent of this. The second reason is, when was it actually invented? We That's know when it thing. was used, but we don't know when it was invented. Yeah, so, Mike, from the story, I think it was the, like t- 2032 this guy came back in time, but yep. if they had a functional time travel device by then, it had to be invented long before, yep. you know, before you'd subject humans to yep. it. There's a lot of great things of people where they go back and they say, when was something invented? And the answer to it is, if you go back, I listen to people think something's invented. It was invented 50, 100 years in front of that. It just wasn't recognized yeah. um, you know, as being what it is, or it wasn't in the form that people assume that it is. We'll talk about that with Amazon One Click probably in a future podcast because that yeah. patent expires pretty soon too. I also want to correct something, Mike. You said patents only last 17 years. They actually last 20 years now from the date that you yeah. filed them. 20 years from the date of filing as opposed to 17 years from yeah. the date of issue, which is the old law. Okay, question number two is from Alexandra, uh, no last name given, in Glen Ridge, New Jersey. Where's Glen Ridge? I don't know. That's got to be New York City. Where's New Jersey? New Jersey. There's, nothing, there's, nothing <laughs> the, there's nothing east of the Mississippi River, right? That's, that's Sorry, right. I'm all you guys the, the world ends uh, in Illinois. Um, uh, in, in many ways. Uh, so she says, uh, every Star Wars movie has a character who says certain lines like, I've got a bad feeling about this. Is that part of the trade dress or something else? It's a good question. That's what do you a think? very good question. I think one of the things that I've got a bad feeling about this could be a little concerning because that tends to be used by a different character in every, every movie. Every movie, yeah. And that's part of sort of the reference is who is going to say it. Well, it's, um, it's not a trademark, right? Because they're not selling any goods under I've got yep. a bad feeling about this. And it's probably this. too short for copyright. Definitely. Because yeah, I it's think just so. a single phrase, and that's for the most part. Although the happy birthday song lyrics are copyrighted, it only has six words in it. Yeah, but they've used it in single phrase. It's yeah. usually the, the sort of thing in conjunction with that's at least a stanza and has music and stuff along those lines. I think the idea with this is it could be. 
you know, you could have something like this rise to the level of trade dress because it becomes so associated yeah. with it that that people associate it with it. At the same time, you've got to kind of wonder what really is a trademark line. Now, obviously, we've referenced a trademark line, you know, previously in conjunction with this podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've got a bad feeling about this. this is a great one from Star Wars, but again. That's not necessarily a phrase that they have it. The other one I always think of, and I can think of as you know, sort of reference to um, to Star Wars as a trademark line is "Do or do not." There is no try. Yeah. Um, well, Luke, I am your father. And she doesn't <laughs> actually say Luke, but <laughs> yes. Well, and, and I'm this, your father. This, like, what's the infringement, right? If somebody else uses, I've got a bad feeling about this in a movie. Is there really any risk that somebody's going to be confused and like, oh, yep. I'm watching a Star Wars film? I mean, no. Yep. And I think that's the thing where you get into trade dress. If you're, you're if you're purposely referencing it, it kind of potentially could get into trade dress, and it's more something that maybe a trade dress that can't be infringed. It's a trade dress that references is the movie, yeah. but it doesn't necessarily get infringed. Well, that's all we've got. Uh, if you have questions, please reach out to us on Twitter at LGGpod, or you can email us at LGGpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, we're running really long today, so we're going to wrap this up. Uh, thank you for listening. Please, if you like what you hear, uh, leave us a review, uh, preferably a five-star review, because we are that good. Um, <laughs> and you can find us on Podbean, Stitcher, iTunes, wherever else you get your podcast content. We will be there, and you can get us. Uh, so thank you again for listening, and we'll see you next time. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by Lewis Rice LLC, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. This podcast was produced and recorded at Cool Fire Studios in St. Louis, Missouri.